0: Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 14, being recorded on Friday, February 19th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, how are you? Happy Friday. Uh, happy Friday, or a Guten Tag.
1: Yeah, you were in Germany this week, right?
0: I was. I just got back a few hours ago from the Hybris Partner Summit, or I should say the SAP Hybris Partner Summit in Munich. you feel good
1: to kind of finally take the lederhosen off and relax?
0: What, who says I've taken the lederhosen off?
1: Okay, good. You're you're wearing it for the show. Now you've totally ruined the rest of the show with that mental image for our audience.
0: Yes, as if there were positive mental images before that.
1: <laughs> Gee, you get a your fill of uh, pretzels and and beer?
0: I did. I feel like that's a, a an SAP thing all over the world. Is they like to serve Bavarian food to remind you of where they're from, and so when you're in Bavaria, that it's it's pretty abundant. Ah, good. Well,
1: while you were out enjoying the... Was it snowy there? I imagine it was pretty cold. It fit. was
0: not. It was um, warmer than Chicago. It was ah. probably like 30s or 40s Fahrenheit.
1: Well, while you were enjoying trotting around in your leader hosen, we had a lot in the world of e-commerce that we should talk about. Exactly. The first thing that you probably missed, I, I don't know if you were able to check out uh, some of the news, but uh, Walmart announced their earnings. and This is after they had kind of lowered their forecast going into earnings with a bit of a pre-announcement when they did their same store sales. Um, and I think the, the surprising thing with this one was that they lowered their outlook even further. So when they last lowered it, which I think was in January, like that first week of January, they said, Hey, um, uh, you know, we're going to lower outlook and we'll be kind of, we were expecting 6% growth and now we're looking at 3%. Then in this lowering of their outlook, they kind of said we were wrong. We're essentially going to be flat. Uh, And then that counts the store closures and some currency headwinds that they're having. So, so all in, they're saying they'll be flat. Um, Now uh, stores is, is a big part of that. And I think, you know, it's, up 0.6% or something is what they're predicting when you take out the currency and the store closures. And those two things are enough to kind of annihilate that 0.6%. Um, the bright spot in the earnings was the e-commerce growth, which um, they kind of, it was a little confusing because I saw two numbers. I saw an 8% number and a 12% number. And, and you and I went in and because of our, uh, our staff on the research side, the research staff was able to determine for us what's going on there. And the 8% number, uh, which is their e-commerce growth is GMV, and the twelve percent is actually their sales from e-commerce. So they're they're starting to have uh, almost like a marketplace, and Walmart does have a marketplace uh, where they're talking about GMV and then the revenue from e-commerce. So, so um, you know, let, let's stick with the eight percent number because that's probably I, I always think GMV is kind of where the actual economic impact is. So while that's good compared to stores that are going to be flat, it feels like a win. I think what's a little worrisome about it is it's quite a deceleration. So um, you had found a chart that shows uh, on fortune, them going from kind of a 30% growth rate in e-commerce down to 8% last quarter, the third quarter of 2015 e-commerce grew 10%. Uh, So definitely even e-commerce is slowing down. So um, some, 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 Good newsish, but a little concerning that Walmart still needs to do more in e-commerce. What, what did did you get a chance to see that? and What did you think?
0: Yeah, so I didn't get to to listen to the earnings call, but I did read the transcript, and I mean, I think you pretty well covered it. Like the stores, you know, when you net everything out, stores were basically flat. Like uh, they were marginally up, which gave them. A story they liked because they, the stores have been up every quarter for like seven consecutive quarters. So they, they made it up again, but it was up by 0.6%. And traffic was nominally up in the stores, which, you know, at least traffic isn't down, which is a trend we're seeing in a bunch of other retailers. So those, Mm -hmm. those were kind of not terrific news. And then on the e-commerce growth, they just, they have this, they've consistently been decelerating. And so, you know, what's scary is, That, you know, man, in 2013, they started making these big investments in e-commerce and they, they really hadn't meaningfully invested and they're way behind Amazon and their, their sales were anemic. So you could have really fast growth, frankly, pretty easily. So they were, you know, posting these 30, 27% growths every quarter. And now, you know, fast forward a couple of years, they've been investing billions of dollars a year into the e-commerce business. And they're not sustaining those kind of growth rates. Like all that easy growth is behind them. It's shrinking down to 8%. And now, you know, they're barely growing, depending on how you count, they're barely growing faster than e commerce overall. They're certainly losing ground to Amazon, which, if you consider the size of the e commerce business at Amazon and Walmart, it should be much easier for Walmart to grow than it should be for Amazon to grow. So, so that is super alarming that they've made all these investments. Um, and it feels like, like, you know, things are just, uh, slowing down to a, to an equilibrium for them on e-commerce.
1: Yeah. And to put that uh, 8% in perspective for folks, we, we generally talk about, I like the comm score growth number of about 15%. So it's about half that rate. Amazon's fourth quarter was, uh, all in was about 26% constant currency. If you take books out, then it was thirty, thirty-one percent, which is the EGM. And then, if you look at the third-party marketplace, the marketplace grew at about forty percent. So, so Amazon is just gobbling up share. What, what do you think Walmart should do? Uh, you know, so so let's kind of you know pretend you're the CEO of Walmart. You get a bit of a sideways kind of a, a move in your career. Uh, you're CEO of Walmart. Uh, what do you do?
0: How do you how do you stop this? Well, Neil, Ash, and Fernando, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, so they do have some smart guys running the ship, and to be honest, they they sort of tip their hand what they thought they would do, and it seems like a reasonable approach. Um, before I jump into it, I did want to sort of mention one thing. That, that listeners should bear in mind about Walmart is their e-commerce business is pretty international at this point so North America is for sure their largest market but they are getting meaningful revenue from China and from Brazil and I I think probably the UK as well so so some of these numbers were were're slightly comparing apples to oranges with North American growth versus versus international growth and I think Walmart mentioned that that they we're particularly taking it in the shorts on e-commerce and some of those international markets, for whatever that's worth. But I think the story is still, the trend is still the same in North America for sure. And so one of the things that they talked about is a real focus on increasing the assortment, uh, particularly in the grocery category. And that's an interesting play to me for Walmart for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, unlike a lot of the other uh general goods merchandising categories where they're competing head to head with Amazon and there's all this established consumer behaviors you know, people are already buying from Amazon. Grocery e commerce is really pretty nascent and none of the big grocery retailers, you know, they they've all been basically digital laggards i think kroger which is the largest grocery chain in the us kroger just launched buy online pick in store this quarter and it's been phenomenally successful which shows you there's a lot of latent demand for for digital shopping experiences in grocery and so well i know amazon has a play there as well walmart's a very big brick and mortar grocery store they actually sell more groceries than kroger does And, and it feels like that's a little bit more of a white space and a chance where they could compete maybe on a little bit more of a level playing field than, than in, uh, you know, apparel or other categories where they're, you know, having to try to catch up against a, a a market leading competitor that's running super fast. So I do think for a variety of reasons that grocery might be a smart play. And, and if I take a step back from that and even generalize it a little bit, It just, it doesn't feel like it's realistic for Amazon right now to focus on, or I'm sorry, for Walmart to focus on capturing dramatically net new market share through e-commerce. Like they're, they're by far the largest retailer in the world. What their focus really needs to be on is capturing wallet share of their existing customers and making sure that when those brick and mortar shoppers transition to digital behaviors, that they have a good option to do it in the Walmart ecosystem and not leave that ecosystem to go to Amazon and places like that. And so so in general, I think I think it's too ambitious to say, "Oh my gosh, Walmart should be going head to head with Amazon." What they really need to do is protect the $300 billion in revenue they're getting from the brick and mortar stores by, you know, offering things that ap- a- appeal to their specific demographic. Um, and you know i think they're trying a lot of those things the you know buying line paying cash for the unbanked customers the savings catcher you know i think if they if they do a good job of extending into grocery like those are all good defensive tactics to sort of shore up their their existing customers
1: yeah isn't so I'll, i'll play devil's advocate um i get where you're going with grocery but isn't that like insanely hard so when they say that do you Do you think they're going to do like Amazon fresh and have trucks delivering these things or, or or is it just gonna be more like in-store pickup of grocery? What, what do you think the vision for grocery online at, at Walmart is?
0: Yeah. So I think there's a three tier play. There's a ton of people shopping in the store that want more product information and want pre shopping. They want to know that you have the steak that they want in stock before they go to the store, uh, for the barbecue you're planning or, you know, so frankly, just having better, having a better digital shelf for your brick and mortar customers would be, Um, an improved customer experience would, which would potentially win them visits for, uh, at Walmart against Kroger and Safeway and the traditional physical, um, grocery retailers they're competing against. So to me, that's tier one. That's, that's the, lo- the super low hanging fruit. Then you get into the, the buy line pickup in store experiences and leveraging that footprint of all those stores they have. And that, that, you know, feels like kind of walk in the crawl, walk, run. And then, you know, delivering the groceries to home is, is really the run play, and you know, given the economics of that right now, that's really not a perfect match with Walmart's demographic. So I don't think protecting their existing customer uh, that a home delivery service for grocery is necessarily like the most important play for Walmart. Like that, that makes more sense for Amazon that has a more affluent customer base. Not saying Walmart shouldn't tackle it at some point, because frankly there there's nothing easy left for walmart to do here right like they they are a huge retailer they're enjoying tons of revenue they make 5 billion dollars a quarter you know which certainly amazon by the way does not do what you know there there are no easy plays for walmart here to keep growing like they're they're going to have to tackle something that's very hard and be successful at it and i think what what scares investors is they're they're tackling a really hard thing that Amazon has already tackled, and they're they're throwing a bunch of money into it, and they're not seeing phenomenal results. And so, you know, I I think they need to pivot to to something where there is a little more white space.
1: Okay,
0: fair enough. Any other interesting uh, retail news that you saw this week? Another earnings uh, call was uh, Nordstrom, and you know. They're in a category where everyone is reporting some disappointing results. And I don't, you know, Nordstrom's was very disappointing. I think they, they took it in the shorts pretty hard on their stock after their, their earnings call. Um, but what was interesting to me was this juxtaposition of the mainline stores and the rack stores. So, uh, you know, there were a couple of storylines there. This quarter, there were more Nordstrom Rack stores than there were Nordstrom Mainline stores. So the Rack kind of passed Nordstrom in terms of store count. Um, And in terms of growth, same-store sales in the Mainline Nordstrom stores were down 3.2%, and growth was up 6.9% in the Rack. And the reason that is really interesting is because Nordstrom for a long time has been saying that the rack stores are additive and do not cannibalize their mainline stores, and that the shoppers are different. And you know when when analysts in the market talk about the these discount retail models cannibalizing mainline sales, Nordstrom was the biggest example of of someone proving that that's not the case. And frankly, they were opening. Rack stores a few blocks from mainline stores in in you know the exact same zip codes, and uh, you know this quarter the results don't appear to support uh, Nordstrom's premise that that there is not cannibalization. Maybe maybe in a good economy there's not cannibalization, but as things get get uh, squeezed, um, it appears like there are the uh, mainline customers that are willing to shift down to to those Nordstrom rack stores, and so that. You know, had a, a really derogatory effect on Nordstrom's margin, and, and then you know, on the e-commerce side of the fence, in a way, it's a similar story to Walmart that they they got very serious about e-commerce a few years ago. They've made these major investments. They announced like a five billion dollar e-commerce capex program over four years. They've spent over half that capex already, um, and on the one hand, they've had huge success. They've grown from like. Uh, e-commerce being four percent of their sales to this quarter, e-commerce was twenty percent of their sales. So very meaningful. I think that makes them the second best um, department store in terms of e-commerce sales behind uh, Neiman Marcus, which is at like twenty-seven percent. But uh, as we've talked about a few times on the show, margins in e-commerce are are tough, and it 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 you know sometimes they're much. It's much more difficult to maintain margins in e-commerce, particularly in apparel, where you have very high returns and you have to offer free shipping and free returns. So, you know, now that that e-commerce is a huge piece of their mix, they're they're finding that e-commerce is straining their their profitability as well, and so that was one of the factors for them them missing their profit target so significantly.
1: Yeah, I always thought it was kind of interesting. I don't know if people really have their heads around this that. Uh, and, and this is probably true for Saks and a lot of the other luxury brands is there's this perception of luxury and, you know, this very high end kind of experience, but then where a lot of their growth is, is from their outlets. So they almost like create this luxury kind of thing brand to then have an outlet where they sell stuff to mere mortals. So it, it's pretty interesting to see that play out in the numbers like you described.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the age old question is uh how long can you offer those, those sort of, uh, discounts and still maintain the equity in the mainline brand? Like, do you eventually erode it, right? And, you know, yeah. frankly, people talk a lot about Coach as, is the example of a, of an aspirational brand that, you know, got super aggressive at outlet stores and super aggressive at price points and, you know, the, the sort of you know joke was you know that your cleaning lady now comes to the house with a coach bag and suddenly it's not aspirational anymore and a lot of the goodwill in the brand goes away and so you know we're in a, a market right now where Nordstrom, Saks, Macy's are all rushing to this you know seemingly more profitable discount mo- uh, model but you know there are the cautionary tale here is are they doing long-term damage to their brands by focusing so much on that discount shopper
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about I saw Neiman Marcus is opening a big new flagship. Have you uh, had a sh- chance to shoot over there?
0: No, I have not yet. I am planning a New York trip because there's there's frankly a bunch of new retail that's open in the last month in the New York area. So the Neiman Marcus flagship is is sort of in uh, Long Island, so a short jaunt from from Manhattan. I think I mentioned earlier that Neiman Marcus was an early investor in e commerce, and they're actually at like twenty seven percent. Of all their their sales are from e commerce, which is pretty impressive. Mm. Part of the the thing you have to remember here is for some of these luxury brands, um, their their stores are only in aspirational places that lots of the U.S. population can't get to, and so those stores help them build this brand. But then you know many more customers are able to visit the. The e-commerce site than are able to physically visit the stores. I, I know at Saks, you know, it's it's a, it's a huge number. It's like ten times as many people visit the e-commerce site every year as visit all the stores combined. And so that's part of the reason that these guys have uh, e-commerce is such a big piece of their mix. But so if you're opening a store and you have a big chunk of your customers that are used to interacting with you digitally. You know, it it raises the bar on the the expectations for the digital experience inside of the store. And so, again, I haven't been to the new store yet. I know that they're deploying those Mimo Me mirrors, which is one of the smart mirror companies out there. Mm -hmm. You tend to see two kinds of smart mirrors. There are mirrors that go in the dressing rooms, and those, for for reasons that might be obvious, tend to not have cameras on them, but they have like a user interface so you can see what other colors something's in and ask a salesperson to bring you another size or things like that. But then you have these mirrors that are outside of the dressing room whose main feature is that they have a camera in them. And so then you can try on apparel, uh, take a photo of you in that dress, send that to your friends to get some social proof or, um, or get some validation. You can see what it looks like from behind, which is hard to do. Um, without the, the video capabilities of the mirror and you can see what like other colors of that outfit would look like without having to try it on. And so these Mimo mirrors are that, are that later kind of virtual try on that lets you socially share your, your products and stuff, and so that sounds like it's a big part of the new store. And then uh, Neiman Marcus has one of my favorite clienteling apps. So they give all the salespeople iPhones. They they have all the, their their best shoppers' purchase history in there. But what I really like is they have really good integration with their customer their store affinity program, which is called the the InCircle program. And there's a bunch of tiers of this InCircle program. If you're in one of the top tiers of the InCircle program and you walk in the store. They have geofenced you, and the store manager gets pinged that a, a a known high value customer just walked in the store. So not only do they they have a bunch of information about what you've browsed online and what your past purchases have been online and in the store, but they actually you know give the sales associates a heads up uh, to help identify those highest value customers and give them a really uh, special uh, personalized experience.
1: Cool. Does it actually work? Does the manager kind of come running over and say, "Hello, Jason. Welcome to our store."
0: So here's the one challenge: the top tier of the Neiman Marcus Affinity Program requires fifty thousand dollars a year in spend, and so I haven't actually hit it yet. Oh, okay, keep trying. I've, uh, much to my wife's chagrin, I've fallen far short every year. <laughs> So I haven't personally experienced that, but I I have been told that there that there are you know frequent customers that like really appreciate the sort of bespoke level of service and that you just you feel more special because you are you are known and uh, treated differently you know in exchange for your your frequent patronage. Cool. So that seems like a cool one. Uh, I know Barney's also opened a new flagship store and this one in lower Manhattan. And this is a fun story. Barney's original store was on the same block. So their original store was on 7th Avenue between 16th and 17th. And this new store is not the exact same location, but it's on the same block. And once again, like the big story of this flagship, it's not a, A huge square foot store, it's not as big as their Fifth Avenue store, but it's a much more digital store. And so they've outfitted the whole store with beacons so they can geolocate you, They've added clienteling, which uh, is new for Barney. So this will be their first experience giving all those sales associates iPads and, and having them have a, a better view of their customers' preferences. And they're also doing same-day delivery out of that store. So they're exposing that store's inventory online and shoppers can place purchases and have them delivered to their homes in Manhattan. Cool. So when are, you,
1: are you going there soon so you can bring us a report?
0: Uh, I absolutely will. I I do not have a date booked yet, but there's also, you know, there's some cool uh, Etsy pop-ups. There's a new T-Mobile flagship store in Times Square. So there there definitely is enough good stuff going on in Manhattan to uh, justify a retail trip. So hopefully sometime in the next four or five weeks, I will do it. And, you know, podcast listeners will be the first to know. Who ended up
1: taking the Toys R Us space? Is that, have they announced anything?
0: No, I don't believe that that's been rented yet. Ah, okay, wow. It's this... uh. Interesting Quagmire, right? Like it's the world's most expensive retail real estate. And so when a retailer can't afford it anymore and it goes empty, there are not a line of people waiting to spend that money to move in there. And so sometimes in order to maintain those high prices, those landlords have to sit on those lots for longer than you would like. Maybe Amazon will put a bookstore there. That would be awesome.
1: So I'm a little confused on Barney's. So they they had a store. Did, was there a period of time when that store closed and then they yeah, reopened? They moved
0: the store from okay. this kind of like downtown location. Obviously, like all the the fashion and buzz industry moved uh, to you know midtown and and particularly to Fifth Avenue. And so like during this kind of uh, evolution in New York, Barney's closed that that uh, lower Manhattan store and opened uh, an iconic Fifth Avenue store. And so now they're. They're returning to to Lower Manhattan, which has suddenly become trendy and hip. And in fact, this store is actually only a few blocks from the, uh, my Razorfish office in New York.
1: Ah, so you're right in the. Of course, you're right in the heart of the
0: trendy. I space. mean, that's sort of what defines trendy as and hip is where wherever they would have me sit.
1: Yeah. Well, one story I saw that uh, was more pure digital that was really interesting is, uh, and I'll preface this to let listeners know, I'm not a huge Snapchat user, but my teenage daughter is, she spends probably uh, an ungodly amount of time on Snapchat every day. So she's she's a big user of that platform. Um, and part of what she has started to really like, so the first thing she really likes about Snapchat that's new are these lenses. So the companies, they started out where Snapchat would give you these lenses, and the way it works is, Let's say you, Jason, are taking one of your mini selfies of the day. You can actually kind of enhance your selfies. So you could be, you can give yourself popping eyes or uh, my favorite one is where you could be vomiting a rainbow. That's uh, that's always fun. Uh, and that's called lenses. And they started out giving you some lenses and then they had sponsorships for lenses. So companies would sponsor these things and you could have, you know, like your eyeballs could be Starbucks logos or something like that, just as an example. Um, then they have another area where uh, in addition to just chatting with each other, you can discover new things. So um, one of them, for example, was uh, they Victoria's Secret does a lot of this cool Discover stuff that that uh, folks love, where you can kind of see some content that they've published out there. Uh, it was leaked. One of their board members was at the Recode conference and said that um, and her name's Joanna Coles, and she works uh, in some capacity with like one of the publishing companies, and they have a channel on the Discover channel uh, within Snapchat. And they're saying, and I think it's called Sweet. they're saying that it's going to have some e-commerce coming soon. So think of it almost like a curated, kind of a product-oriented video with some content where you can buy right in Snapchat. So that's, that's pretty interesting. You and I have talked about um, chat commerce for a long time. I've been a long believer that Snapchat would go this way. Facebook, I think, is a little bit ahead. We're watching very closely for April when they have their FA conference. I think we're going to have a lot of Facebook Messenger announcements around e-commerce. So it's interesting to start to hear Snapchat kind of buzz and grumble a little bit about this, and, and we'll have to kind of see what that looks like.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it makes perfect sense that they uh, are and should offer a shopping experience. They They have a really appealing, highly engaged Demographic. What's going to be interesting? I haven't actually seen the discover piece of that that app has grown a lot, and there's a ton more content on there than there was even just a year ago. But I haven't actually seen engagement stats to know, you know, how, how much that discovery content is really getting consumed. And so, you know, I think the age-old question is going to come up. You know, are folks that are primarily using um, Snapchat as their utility for communication with their social circle, do they want a commerce experience through that same app? Like, you know, and again... Some parts of the world, that seems like a real common behavior. And so far in the U S, nobody's hit a home run with it yet, but it certainly makes sense that Snapchat should throw their hat in the ring and see how that works. And, and for the listeners, I would just let them know that, uh, you know, Scott can blame his daughter all he wants, but I send Scott Snapchat messages at midnight and he responds instantly. Just saying. Oh, you totally outed me on Snapchat. I did. Uh, one thing, and I don't think this worked particularly well, but you know, they did. You mentioned the lenses. They had a, a kind of interesting promotion where they gamified the lenses, where you could o- you could only acquire certain lenses by visiting those particular brick and mortar stores. So they did like a Lily Pulitzer promotion where you had to go to a, a store, and once you did, you were allowed to download the Lindsay Pulitzer uh, lens, and then you you know you could use that treatment. And in their case, it's, you know, that cool resort pastels kind of thing. Um, You could apply that treatment to any of your photos that you published on Snapchat. So it actually created an extra reason to go visit a brick and mortar store, which I thought was pretty clever.
1: Yeah, that is pretty neat. Did you do it? Uh,
0: I fully confess, I have the Lily Pulitzer uh, lens in my Snapchat, and I'll I'll be happy to send you some, some uh, Pulitzerized uh, uh, photos in the near future. We should start at Jason and Scott
1: Discover for all five of our millennial listeners.
0: Yeah, there's a ton of female-oriented shopping services on the net, and most of them will report that they have like 0.06% male audience. And it's usually a safe bet that I'm in that 0.06%. <laughs> I think I'm one of the first users of a Little Black Bag, for example. <laughs> Speaking of the kind of intersection of commerce and chat, uh, I saw a, a clever new offering from Shopify this week, the the ShopKey keyboard. Did you uh, see uh, that?
1: I did not. I saw their earnings. Uh, I did not see this new gadget.
0: Ah. Yeah, so, you know, Shopify, obviously a big SaaS platform for uh, predominantly smaller e-commerce operators doing a lot of interesting things. But so this, this feature, this Shopkey thing is they have created their own keyboard that you can install in the iOS uh, operating system for your iPhone. And custom keyboards is kind of a clever way for people to be able to put their own apps in, in the iPhone. And the Shopify keyboard downloads your whole Shopify product catalog. And so what it lets you do is imagine you're a customer service rep that works for a Shopify retailer and you're talking with a customer and providing customer service, you can switch to this keyboard, see all the products you have for sale touch those products and it adds them to the chat that you're in so that the person on the other end of the chat can then click on those products and purchase them. So it's a clever way to enable a customer service agent to provide shoppable links to products and just make it a little bit easier to provide chat commerce and, and, uh, commerce via, via any of the chat services through the iPhone. So, I'm not sure it'll have huge adoption. It seems like it's definitely targeted at small businesses, both because that's the majority of Shop Shopify's membership, but also I think only a small business would be using an iPhone to provide customer service. But nevertheless, uh, it definitely shows that there's interest in this category of chat commerce. So it's kind
1: of like a stretched use case where you kind of have to be doing, you know, a small business doing support on an iPhone. Although I do know they... Um, their point of sale system that's on an iPad is relatively popular for people that want to have kind of a lightweight omni-channel kind of thing. So maybe that would be a good, good place to utilize it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And again, they're a one-stop shop for a bunch of small businesses that, you know, you, you host your your e-commerce site on them, you use them for your point of sale. If you go out and do events, you you know, they, uh, the point of sale is mobile. So you can sell stuff off of your, your iPad when you, you, uh, you know, travel to events in your industry Uh, And it's a, it's a, You know, the platform's gaining a lot of momentum because it's very fast. It's very low risk. You know, I'll confess that I have a lot of enterprise clients that are on e-commerce platforms that cost millions of dollars. And they'll come to me with a special project and say, Hey, I want to launch this special thing that's, that's needs to go live in six weeks. And, you know, I've now done half a dozen Shopify sites for big enterprise clients because it's just so fast and, and low risk. And, you know, gives you, you know, frankly, a great feature set and value for the buck.
1: Cool. Well, it wouldn't be a show without talking about Amazon. There was quite a bit of Amazon news while you were out of town. Yeah, catch me up. Well, the first one was, um, and I'm sure uh, you're familiar with this, but just for all our listeners, Amazon has had kind of a long history of private label. Um, they started first with something called Pinzon, which I think was betting. Uh, And then they have Strathwood and a couple other things. They even had a coffee brand that were private labels. Um, And then, when the, the most popular private labels were introduced, probably about four years ago, maybe five, and that's Amazon Basics, where they essentially found the urban legend I've heard is they got tired of uh, always recommending to people a $15 HDMI cable to go with their $900 um, TV. And the cost of these cables is literally like 50 cents. So huge margin for whoever's selling it. So I think Amazon looked at that and realized they could do a $7 HDMI cable and still make plenty of margin. So, um, so that's probably the biggest, just to guess brand that Amazon has out there is the Amazon basics, which is largely technology cables. Um, So uh, a couple new things this week around private label. First of all, um, they had tried diapers, and and this is a bit of a reaction to Jessica Alba's company called Honest, which we mentioned I think last week is is looking at filing for an IPO, which is pretty exciting for them. But they have a line of diapers that are very popular. It's their number one seller. Um, So Amazon – uh, about a year ago, tried to replicate that with something called Elements and it did not go well. So um, so they, there was an article out this week that they're running some tests with consumers. And I think it was via email kind of surveying folks trying to find a new brand for a new kind of relaunch of diapers. So I'm calling it Amazon Diapers 2.0. Um, and in there, they talked about a new brand called Mama Bear. So so kind of outside of the Amazon basics. And then this other kind of elements piece that was kind of trying to be like honest it looks like this new diaper uh, brand may be mama bear Um, so i know you have a relatively uh, young diaper wearer in your house that could be exciting for for the goldberg family
0: yes he will be forced to be a guinea pig whether he wants to or not he's already a guinea pig for the the amazon elements baby wipes which are uh, a direct competitor with the honest product how are they doing uh, I think they're doing pretty well. I'll be, I don't think they're, you know, the Amazon position is that they're revolutionary better than anything else on the market. And that, that you know, in my limited expertise uh, around baby wipes, they don't seem to be particularly different than the the Pampers <laughs> baby wipes we were using before. It's hard to, hard to be innovative with a two-dimensional product. I, yeah, one would think. But I will tell you that uh, I use that product as an example a lot for a great, product detail page in the Amazon ecosystem. You want to see a great example of using all the, what Amazon calls the A-plus features. They've done a really good job of building their own product detail pages for Amazon Elements. And so, you know, uh, we use those a lot as a best-in-class example. Yeah, that's
1: a source of frustration for third-party sellers because only first-party get access to the A-plus pages. So as a third-party, you don't have the ability to do all that cool stuff, unfortunately. Yep. Yep. Uh, but and even some first parties claim that those Amazon pages do stuff that that's not even available on A plus pages. I don't have you have you seen that? Uh,
0: it's for sure true, and there are different features that are available in different categories. Um, so it, it it's super obvious when you look at Amazon products like the Kindle that they they absolutely have added incremental features, and there, there's lots of examples of features that are available in product detail pages for brands in some categories that are not available in others
1: so that was the first was diapers and the second was fashion amazon's been pretty serious about apparel for a while uh and by that though they've meant just kind of working with designers having apparel on the site and and working with other brands Uh, but now there's news out that it looks like they're hiring a marks and spencer exec that is going to get them very serious about private label apparel did you see that
0: i did uh that you know before we talk about the, the, their own private apparel, I would just point out they've been really successful at going from apparel being an insignificant part of the mix on Amazon to them being, I think, like the second or third largest apparel retailer in the U.S. And they're forecast that they'll be the largest apparel retailer in the U.S. by the end of this year. So they've yeah. been making a big investment in selling apparel overall. So it makes perfect sense that now that they built up the audience and that people uh, trust them, that they would try to improve their margins by by making their own apparel and selling it to consumers.
1: Yeah. So do you think they'll um, think they'll get pretty serious about this? Are you envisioning? a whole line of things or do you think it'll be just like a pair of khakis and some basics or kind of thing? Or what, what do you think, where do you think they'll go? Yeah.
0: So, so competing in fast fashion is a whole different ball game than competing in staples. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I'm not sure they have tipped their hand. They, they've talked a lot about like, because we now are a big apparel retailer, like we see the data and we see the gaps in the offering and, um, the, you know, they're basically implying that we we think there's a market for particular types of apparel that isn't well served by the national uh, labels, and so you know we we're we're going to have an opportunity to leverage all this great customer insight to to make products for an untapped market. It's very difficult to stay on trend and uh, both either identify a trend or create a trend, make enough products, market that product before the the product sells out, or but. Be- before that trend expires, right? And this is what the, the Zara's of the world and the H and M's of the world are are super good at, and it's also, frankly, why they really struggle at e commerce because you know they, it tends to be short life cycles and short lots. And then you look at the you know the the traditional staple apparel retailers, the Gaps, the J Crews, the Uniqlo's. Their product lines change a lot less frequently, and so intuitively you would think that that is where amazon is likely to start it's it's hard to imagine amazon being a true tastemaker and and competing well in fast fashion but you know they've they've tackled a bunch of tough categories before that we all bet against them and made them successful so i'm i'm not prepared to completely write them off
1: yeah i think staples kind of lines up with that amazon basics approach where if they could take a couple you know khakis and you know a pair of jeans and something like that and not have something that's similar quality to what's available, but half off, it it could be kind of disruptive. So that's my guess too, that that's where they'll start. Um, The other thing I think people don't have a full grasp of is if you look at the scale of Amazon and the amount of data they have, I I think it gives them a bit of an interesting unfair advantage on some of this stuff. And, And they're a very data driven company. So I imagine, you know, they sit there and they, they can count the number of, uh, I'll just make this up, you know, the number of khakis or they, they can look at the data and see where there's an opportunity. They can also start, they can see demand supply imbalances. I've often felt that's kind of what they did with the HDMI cables where we, we had a lot of third-party sellers there just, you know, struggling to keep up with the demand for HDMI cables even. And I think they can look at that and say... Hey this, this is an area where we we need to help the market because there's just not enough supply so we can we can provide that. So it's very interesting that they have this they have so much transactional data that they can call on when it comes to this private label stuff and they can you know they can probably be pretty scientific about guessing how much it will sell, how to price it uh, and all that because they see such a large spectrum of the data.
0: Yep, particularly uh, size. I think is going to be an interesting one. You know, a lot of the traditional apparel brands have kind of used intuition and been a little snobbish around size, right? Like they're less. I mean, the Abercrombies or the Lululemons, you know, sort of famously weren't very interested in appealing in in offering products in all the sizes their customers wanted them in. And Amazon sees all those searches, right? And when they say, "Hey, we see a gap," you know, part part of my suspicion is. That, you know part of that gap is that there's items that people want to buy in sizes that you know have constrained inventories that that they're looking to to capitalize on
1: yeah, absolutely uh, two other Amazon things that I'm not sure you saw yeah, you were in Europe, so maybe you saw this one um, they've had Amazon lockers and those are very popular it's largely in the u k they've got some in the u s Um, they did announce uh, that they are going to be pretty uh, uh, heavily investing in expanding the locker program to the rest of Europe, to kind of continental Europe. So so that'll be interesting. Um, It is interesting because they've been using – kind of some third-party lockers that are out there. Uh, so in Germany, I think they use it's either Deutsche Post or something like that or, or DHLs. Uh, so so in a way, it's going to be kind of a competing locker system. So so whatever reason it, maybe the economics didn't work out there or there weren't enough of them or they're just kind of going at their own, they're, you know, they're going to be investing pretty heavily in lockers throughout the rest of Europe. Um, and then the one that really caught my attention that was under the radar with the rest of the press, and this whole program is very under the radar, and I, th- I think we owe it to our listeners to kind of Bring it to the forefront. Um, I've been following this Amazon Flex program very closely, and the way it works is essentially it's a clone of Uber, uh, but for packages. So Uber has a program called Uber Rush, and it's 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 very close to Uber Rush. So the way Flex works is it was born in Seattle for um, when they do Prime Now, which is their same day kind of one hour, two hour delivery. And the way it works is very Uber-esque. So there's a driver app, and there's these drivers out there, and they get a notification from Amazon that says, hey, we have um, some parcels for delivery to this zip code. Um, there's five parcels, and we're willing to pay anyone uh, $10 to deliver this, just to make it up. So you, they send a message out there, and you raise your hand as a driver and say, "I'll take that delivery." So then, um, there's a consumer-facing app where you can see uh, where the driver is and their delivery to you and all that good stuff. Just, just very Uber-esque in that regard. And then there's a third app, which is the Amazon coordination kind of back into this. So, so then Amazon expanded it as they've expanded the Prime Now program, which is one of the fastest expansions I've ever seen. Uh, there are well over 20 markets now, including ours here in Raleigh-Durham, which is always kind of a uh, – we're always the last to get things, so it's interesting they're here. And all the drivers I've seen so far have been flex-oriented uh, drivers. Uh There's an article out today that they are now starting to use Flex for primary Amazon deliveries. So that means the things that you could order through your normal Prime, not Prime Now, so two-day delivery – um, they're starting to test in certain regions uh, using the Flex network for that. And what I what I think is interesting in this kind of having watched the Amazon playbook uh, and and just just you know when you start to see stats like today something like twenty five to thirty percent depending on whose number of households have Prime um, something like eighty percent of college deliveries are are um, you know Amazon boxes. Uh, What's interesting to me is if I think about this, I think this could be a Trojan horse way of competing with Uber. So, so bear with me for a second. Let me kind of explain how this could work. So, your Amazon, you experiment with this flex. You get it's, it works. The economics work out because of the package density that you're providing. So, if you can have someone deliver for ten dollars and five packages, that's two dollars a package, which is which is pretty good compared to like a UPS or FedEx at anywhere from four to eight dollars, let's say. Um, so, first of all, economics are good for you and your delivery business. But then, what starts to happen is if you have enough of these flex drivers out there. Why couldn't you then have an app that kind of says, you know, Amazon um, People Mover, you know, just to kind of create a random name where you then start to say, hey, if we have enough drivers delivering packages when they're not busy, maybe they could deliver people. So maybe they move people around and you don't have to have the margins of an Uber. You could you could almost you know pass 100% of that onto the drivers and subsidize your package delivery with people delivery. So it's almost kind of the opposite way that Uber has gone about it. I think if I was an Uber, I'd be very worried about this because there's certain benefits to delivering packages over people. What do you think am i am I crazy or uh, am I on to something
0: well so a none of this disproves that you're crazy, so I'm gonna go with yes, you are crazy but i I still think you might be onto to something I mean it, you know certainly it's much there there's much less complexity to delivering packages than the people right like you don't have to worry about the safety of the passengers as much uh packages are are perfectly happy to share the trunk with a bunch of their friends whereas Passengers don't tend to like that as much. You know where they're going beforehand. So, you know. And, and that to me is the big thing. And that's to me a big distinction, even between Amazon Flex and Uber uh, delivery, right? Is that the Am- Amazon is deciding if and when to use this service. So they have. A bunch of packages that need to get a place, and then they decide what the most uh, uh, cost-effective mechanism is to get them there. The Uber delivery model is exactly the opposite, right? Like you're, the customer chooses that as the delivery system, and then that product gets delivered by Uber. And to me, that's a huge miss because what that means is that package is going in that car alone, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's super inefficient. And you know, so in the short term, it seems like Amazon has a Very practical model for, again, taking costs out of the delivery uh, system, which is going to be critical to their continued growth and profitability. And if you look at this in the real long term, uh, I'm going to confess I'm an avid watcher of Shark Tank. And uh, Chris Cicada, who's one of the original investors in Uber, is, is a guest on the show this season. And I'm constantly yelling at the screen because... At every deal he mentions how uh, he only invests for the real long term and that's why he was one of the earliest investors in Uber for example and I keep thinking Uber's potentially a great investment and they you know I use them all the time that uh, I'm a big fan of the service but it seems to me that that's very obviously a service with a finite life that you know 15 years from now when all the cars are driving themselves we're not going to be using Uber to book those driverless cars. Like, you know, Uber's value in that supply chain kind of goes away. And so to me, they seem like they solved a. A, a tertiary problem right now, and and congrats, and ho- hopefully they can make a bunch of money on it in the in the next few years. But it's it's not a long term solution, and the the Amazon model potentially scales much better and and you know solves a much more fundamental problem.
1: Yeah, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on this for listeners and keep you appraised of if we see more of this. But I do think everyone should kind of check this out. It's Amazon Flex, and that's their drivers delivering packages program. Um we're, we're short on time. Just a couple other things I wanted to throw out there. It wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show without some AR, VR. So um, as we sit and wait for our Oculus Rift to, to be delivered at some point this spring, uh, there was a couple news items here just to hit on quickly. Um, there's uh, The TED uh, show is going on, I think it's in Canada or something, this, this week uh, and this weekend. And today, uh, all the news was out that you know, AR, VR stole the show. So one of the things I saw um, some screenshots of, the videos won't be out for a couple weeks, was Microsoft was there giving kind of another HoloLens demo. And every demo they give is a little bit better. In this one, they did a couple of things. They did a Mars teleportation. So the person wearing the HoloLens, they took actual scans that the Mars rover had done and, and essentially teleported that person to Mars right on stage. Um, and then they did um, kind of a shared experience kind of a thing. So then they could almost like put a, third, a second person in that same situation, but they were in another location somewhere else far away. So they could kind of see the other person, so the person in Canada, and let's say the other one was in, I guess, Redmond, uh, they could kind of be part of that experience. So it's kind of like Skype for 3D if you can kind of get your head around that. So that that blew people's mind when they did that. Um, everyone thought the Mars thing was cool, and then it like just blew everyone's mind when the the second person was doing a shared experience. So you, know, you and I could go to a basketball game in New York. You could be in Chicago. I could be in Raleigh. and We could be virtually sitting next to each other. It could be kind of a crazy... That's the kind of stuff that's going to happen with this technology.
0: I'm picturing you and I having some epic uh, matches of virtual Minecraft.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or, um, you know, uh, doing our leader hose and dances and stuff that we do. Uh, the other one I saw that was interesting was uh, a company called Meta. Everyone calls it Meta, but you, you know, to learn more about it, you have to go to metavision.com. They have a pair of AR glasses, and a lot of their use cases seem to be more businessy. y So they, they have kind of... Conference calls where, you know, imagine you're doing a conference call and you can see. You know, a good 3D representations of people kind of hovering in space in front of you, kind of like Skype for a conference call in 3D. Um, so those are two interesting things. And the last one that was interesting was we mentioned it on the show. Um, there's this Xbox uh, demonstration, which is called The Mall on Xbox One, and it's by this cool digital agency in the UK called Von Bismarck. Uh, I had a call with them uh, a week ago and reminded me to go check that out. Uh, it is on the Xbox one kind of app store, so I downloaded it and um, it was a really good experience it's really cool you can you can use the Connect and everything to try on clothes and uh, it's pretty neat. you can shop using your hands and flip through all the things you would expect and kind of a uh, an interactive mall like that. Uh, the thing that was surprised me, though, when I went to buy something, it didn't just kind of use my Xbox points. It started to use this thing. And it was like a QR tag, but it was called a power or power tag. Um, and what was interesting about that is I saw an article that they're one of these unicorns, but uh, like a couple of the other cor- unicorns that have hit on some hard times, like the Zenefits, uh, you know, what what's happening is this company seems to be um, going into administration. So it's one of these that had a couple million dollars of revenue, but hundreds of million dollars of losses. So um, I don't know much about that. It's payments. And I, I thought I would ask you about that. And had you heard anything about it and, and any other AR, VR news that you saw?
0: Yeah. So I, I have not seen any other AR, VR news this week other than uh, I think the the deals are now out for the the um, Oculus Rift compatible PCs, so you can start shopping for your PC to make your Oculus Rift work now. Uh, PowerTag has been out there for a couple of years. They're um, a little bit of a, a Swiss Army knife of products, so they have um, a audio um, watermarking technology. So uh, a few folks have used them on television ads, so that you know, uh, somewhat similar to Shazam, and I, I would say Shazam is a much more popular version of this you you can put some some uh, audio signature in your soundtrack and then that can cause an app to know that a particular commercial is playing and so they they've uh, they've sold that technology to a couple advertisers they do have this very old first generation mobile wallet which is what you're seeing in the Xbox mall demo and you know frankly probably not competitive with with more recent uh, mobile wallets and not, not likely to survive. And then they also bought a mobile p- point of sale company. And so they, they do have a, a bunch of users out there that have this, that are running a mobile POS uh, that's powered by power And so I, th- I think the the thought was they bought these three different businesses and they could kind of link them all together and be, you know, enable end to end payments uh, through, through advertisements, through shopping, you know, on devices, on mobile phones, et cetera. And I, uh, does not seem like they've they've captured great traction. I have a couple of clients that have have used them in various promotions, and it's it's all just too proprietary. So, like in order to use any of those things, you have to have the the, the appropriate app installed on your phone. Whereas, you mm-hmm. know, a QR code is kind of generic, and there's ten readers that can read it. The you know Shazam is installed on millions of phones. The PowerTag experiences really only work when when you successfully get someone to install your your PowerTag enabled app, and so. To me, that, that's a limiting factor for those guys, but it sounds like, like they, they uh, may be hitting some economic hard times in any case.
1: Yeah, yeah so we'll, we'll uh, keep everyone posted on how that goes too.
0: Yeah, so uh, we should probably wrap up for tonight, but uh, uh, as soon as I get unpacked, I'm going to repack because I'm headed off to Etel West next week. So hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about uh, some of the stuff from that show in next week's edition. Cool, and where are they having that this year? Yeah, well, you know, I'm obviously going for the content, so the venue doesn't really matter to me. But uh, I did notice that it's in Palm Springs, which is much warmer than it is here in Chicago.
1: Ah, so you get a little winter vacation and enjoy some sunshine.
0: Exactly. It's probably, uh, you know, a contributing factor to many attendees of Eto West is the the nice weather this time of the year in Palm Springs.
1: That's pretty smart of them. Well, thanks for listening, everyone, and you have a safe trip, Jason.
0: Thank you much, Scott. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review.